Good evening, everybody. I'm so honored to be with all of you to celebrate Passover. I especially want to thank Rabbi Sharon Brous, Ikar, the Milton Gottesman Jewish Day School of the nation's capital for being a part of this special gathering. I also want to take a moment to welcome several distinguished guests who are joining our Passover celebration this evening. My friend, Senator Jackie Rosen, Congressman Brad Schneider, Congressman Ted Deutsch, hi Ted, Congressman Debbie Wasserman Schultz, hi Debbie, Congressman Lois Frankel, hello Lois. And finally, I want to thank each of you, the thousands of you, zooming in from across the country to join us, including my own beloved parents, Mike and Barb, and other members of our family. Now this is a moment of many firsts. We are gathered today for the first Passover celebration of the Biden-Harris administration. And I'm excited to join you as the first ever second gentleman married to the first woman to serve as Vice President of the United States and as the first Jewish spouse of a president or a vice president. This is the second Passover in a row that we're celebrating virtually, and hopefully it's the last. The pandemic has forced all of us to adjust or pause some of our favorite traditions and activities. But if we all continue to follow the guidelines that are helping to keep us safe, and you know what they are, stay socially distanced, wear a mask, get vaccinated when it's your turn, we're going to win this fight against COVID, and we're all going to be together in person next year. Now, Passover. It's always been one of my favorite holidays. In fact, some of my best memories of are my own family's Jewish traditions. Um, my mom, Barb, dressing me and my brother Andy and my sister Jamie in matching outfits to go over to my grandma Ann's house in Brooklyn for the Seder. Now, of course, it's exactly what you're picturing, that apartment. The plastic coverings on the sofa, the smell of the brisket wafting in from the kitchen, and me sitting there at the table, patiently waiting, just waiting to dig into that delightfully gelatinous gefilte fish, which inexplicably I still love today, by the way, especially with that red horseradish. Now the Seder is also where I learned from an early age the power of the Passover story. It's a story that's both ancient and resonant, distant and relevant. A story about our ancestors yearning for liberation and finally achieving it. And a story that inspires and informs the struggle for justice to this very day. Now, more than any single tradition, this ongoing search for justice is a thread running through all of our modern Jewish experience. Passover is no exception. Right there, in the text of the Haggadah, 
we're told to see ourselves as if we, too, were freed from Egypt. It's a reminder to put ourselves in the shoes of the oppressed and view their rights as bound up with our own. It's a story that teaches us about perseverance and reminds us that even in the face of a pandemic, faith and resilience can carry us across a sea of uncertainty towards health and happiness for each of us. It teaches us to look out for those we may not even know. The importance of leaving an empty chair at a table for strangers who may not have anywhere else to go. And it teaches us about the value of unsung heroes, the people who don't typically get top billing in the Seder, but without whom the ongoing quest for justice and righteousness wouldn't be possible. And as we celebrate Women's History Month now, we should also talk about the women who've earned their own chapters in the history books, then and now. The often neglected women in the Passover story, including the midwives who saved Moses, the mother who nursed him, the Egyptian princess who spared him the pain of slavery, the sister, a prophet in her own right, who watched over him and ultimately led the Israelites in a song of liberation. But what strikes me most are the unsung heroes in our midst today, the healthcare workers, first responders, working, putting themselves on the line to protect our families, the teachers finding new ways to connect with students, those grocery workers who are working so hard to keep us all fed, the transportation workers getting our essential workforce to their jobs, and all those parents out there and those mothers who are sacrificing, putting careers on hold to keep their families together. And our faith leaders, regardless of any faith, of all faiths, helping all of our communities heal during this very difficult time. Just like in Passover, this pandemic's unsung heroes have done the quiet but necessary work of giving us all a chance to survive, to be safe, healthy, and free. It's fitting that as we gather this year for our virtual Passover celebration, we're beginning to see signs of hope at the end of a very long journey through this pandemic. And as President Biden said, there is light and hope for better days if we all do our part. I wanna thank you again the thousands of you for giving me this opportunity to join you tonight. And on behalf of my own family, some of whom are out there as well, and this administration, I want to wish you and your families a happy, healthy Passover. But now, I have the great privilege to introduce a truly inspirational leader from my hometown of Los Angeles and a powerful guide nationwide. She's more than a rabbi. She's a leader of conscience, a pillar of the movement for social justice. Her congregation, ECAR, is more than a synagogue. It's a center of principled activism, creative worship, and a rich Jewish culture. And I could not be prouder to have her join us tonight. So please join me in welcoming Rabbi Sharon Browse. Thank you so much, Second Gentleman Emhoff. 
That was a beautiful sermon, and I want to tell you that there's a there's an open invitation for you to come preach at Icar anytime when you're back in Los Angeles. If you can share a Torah like that, uh, you are always welcome to speak with us on on the Shabbat or holiday. It is really an incredible honor to join all of you for this sacred celebration as we all begin to prepare our hearts for the Jewish holiday of Passover. I really wanna thank the Biden-Harris administration for opening up this experience, bringing people together from across the country and even across the world in this time. It is an incredible act of grace and love. As we begin together this evening, I am remembering my grandparents, children of immigrants at whose Seder table I sat year after year throughout my childhood. They came to this country fleeing persecution and poverty and never in their lifetime could they have imagined that we would be here together celebrating Passover over a computer with the first second gentleman, a Jew no less, the loving partner of the first woman, the first black and first Asian American vice president, Dayenu, they would say. This weekend, Jews around the world will be gathering at Seder tables to tell one of the greatest stories ever told. This story, Yitziat Mitzrayim, the Exodus from Egypt, has been the beating heart of our people for millennia. It tells how our ancestors suffered hundreds of years of brutality, affliction, and abuse, and then walked triumphantly from enslavement to liberation, from darkness to light, from degradation to dignity. We enter Passover this year amidst the compounding crises of our time, holding grief and isolation, loss and uncertainty. And in the midst of all of this, this story reminds us that we have the muscle memory for survival built into our very beings. Retelling the Passover story reconnects us with hope, the greatest act of defiance against a culture of presumed powerlessness and despair. The Seder is an eternal reminder of the tragedy and the triumph, a reminder that redemption is always possible, a reminder that the work of redeeming this world is not yet done, and that every one of us has a role to play in realizing the dream of a more just and loving society. The Seder calls us to reimagine a world in which the privilege of being human comes with the sacred responsibility to protect and defend those most vulnerable. A world in which we recognize that all of our liberation is tied up in one another. A world in which we know that we belong to one another. We're going to be joined this evening by members of the White House staff and honored guests who will guide us through the steps of the Seder. And I would like to begin this evening by turning to Jonathan Cederbaum, Deputy Assistant to the President and White House Legal Advisor to the National Security Council, who will offer a short reflection on the significance of the four cups of wine that we drink at the Passover Seder. Thank, thank you very much, Rabbi Braus. Let me begin by saying the blessing over the first cup. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, borei pri hagafen. Blessed are you, sovereign of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Because the Passover Seder is an event for asking questions and debating answers, I thought I would ask two questions about the drinking of the wine. And since every question has, at least, has more than one good answer, I'm going to offer three answers to the two questions, two rather traditional ones that I learned growing up, and one more personal that I've learned from attending Seders over my life. 
So why do we drink the wine at the Seder? As at other holidays, we do so to mark the holiness of the event, to separate this time of greater reflection and celebration from our workaday preoccupations. But if that's the answer for one cup, the question remains, why four cups? Four seems to be the magic number at the Seder. We have the four questions. We have the four kinds of children. And so the traditional explanation for having four cups of wine is that in the book of Exodus, the, the, the book of Exodus uses four different words to characterize our liberation from Egyptian slavery. Consistent with that understanding, I think the four cups of wine today remind us that there's more than one kind of slavery and more than one kind of freedom. The kind of slavery we may think of most readily is the physical bondage that the Hebrews suffered in ancient Egypt. And that's the kind of slavery that's central to our own history as Americans, of course, since it was that type of slavery that millions of Africans and their descendants endured over centuries, not only toiling in fields, but also working to build great monuments of our own government, like the US Capitol building here in Washington, DC. And today, we face other kinds of slavery as well, to a terrible disease and to ideologies of hatred, for example. And so as we drink four cups of wine at the Seder, we think of ways that we can work together to help liberate ourselves and our fellow citizens from these other forms of bondage as well. When, I, when we think of the Seder, we mostly think about drinking wine. But to me, wine has another equally important role, and that is being spilled. I'm not going to show that, demonstrate that at this <laughs> clean white table. But um, I don't know about the other folks participating tonight and the thousands on Zoom, but I have attended more than 100 seders in my life. And I don't think I've been to a single one where some wine has not been spilled on beautiful tablecloths, on napkins, on plates of food, and most important to me, on Haggadot, like the one I brought with me uh, this evening. This agata was used by my grandfather, Lou Goldman, my mother's father, when he led seders in Brooklyn, New York, as a newlywed in the 1920s and a young father in the 1930s. Its spine is fraying a little bit. Its pages are marked not only with his little jottings, but also with uh, wine spills from decades past. And so to me, those stains are not imperfections. They are messages reaching across the generations, conveying just as powerfully as the words of the Haggadah, Passover's central message, or one of its central messages, that each generation must tell the next about a very ancient struggle for freedom, so that in every generation, we should know that it is our job to take up that struggle in our own time. Thank you. And now we have been joined by special guest Jeff Sines, who is the national coordinator of the COVID-19 response, who we're so grateful that you've taken the time to be with us for, uh, for a couple of minutes today. I'll turn it to you, Jeff. Well, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. Um, the story of Passover always resonates. It's a story of personal and collective redemption, a trip from bondage to freedom. On Passover, we ask, why is this night different from all other nights? This year, we also reflect, why is this Passover different from past seders? The answer is that this year, we're not contemplating metaphors of plagues. Instead, we're living through a current and real pandemic with immense restrictions on our communal lives. However, thanks to the great sacrifice of Americans, 
the miracles of science and the coordinated efforts of this administration, we are on a path toward a restoration of our freedom. May this holiday remind all of us what we've lost and that which we are collectively working to restore, our freedom. Together, we will come through this stronger with renewed faith in each other and a restored faith in our government. And I wish you all a happy and safe holiday. Thank you. Thank you, Jeff. And thank you for your incredible service to this country. We're so deeply grateful to you. We're going to turn now to Urchatz, which is the ritual hand washing that we do at the beginning of the Seder. This washing is not about cleanliness, and it's also not even about slowing the spread of contagion. It's actually just a ritual hand washing that we do at the beginning of the Seder with no blessing to give ourselves the opportunity to wash away some of our fear and exhaustion and prepare ourselves to feel, even for a moment tonight, as though everything might in fact be possible. And now we'll turn to the karpas, which is the, uh, the parsley or celery, the symbol of spring and rebirth, which we dip into salt water if you follow Ashkenazi custom or into vinegar if you follow Sephardi custom to symbolize the tears of our ancestors in bondage. My favorite explanation of the dipping of the karpas is one that I first learned from my friend, Rabbi David Kasher. He teaches that the karpas harkens back to the book of Genesis, when Joseph's brothers sold Joseph into slavery, an act of violence, brother against brother, that eventually led to our people's enslavement in Egypt. So why did the rabbis, when constructing the Seder, start our story all the way back in Genesis? Because it teaches that our journey to redemption necessitates both overcoming external forces of persecution and reckoning with our own internal struggles, the cynicism, callousness, competition and cruelty in our own homes, in our own communities. This ritual act reminds us that we urgently need to get our own house in order, even as we prepare to fight tyrants and overturn systems of oppression. With that, I'm gonna turn it to Michael Fuchs, special assistant to the president and deputy chief of staff to Vice President Harris, who will speak about yachatz, the significance of the matzah and the afikomen. Hi, good afternoon. Um, I thought I'd start with a line this afternoon from the Haggadah, which says, they baked matzah cakes from the dough that they had brought out of Egypt because it was not leavened, for they had been driven out of Egypt and could not delay, and they had not prepared any other provisions. As we mark this year's Passover and we break the matzah, we're reminded of what the matzah symbolizes, not just for those who fled persecution and slavery in Egypt, but for countless generations since, and for people around the world today. Matzah represents suffering, depriving ourselves of a luxury of everyday life to remind us of the suffering of our ancestors, but of also of others around us uh, every day. The matzah also represents hope, the hope that even during difficult times, a better future is possible. Breaking the matzah at Passover also reminds us of another constant in our lives every day the family and friends that we all hold dear, who sustain us through challenging times, and with whom we celebrate during joyous occasions. 
it, it's hard to ignore when looking at matzah the fragility of matzah and how I think as many of us know, when you try to break it, it never quite, quite breaks along those dotted lines that you think it's going to. Um, the symbolism for the times we find ourselves in probably speaks for itself. Um, but amidst that fragility, I think we can also find the immense resilience to keep trying and keep pushing forward. In the last year, we have all been reminded of our own resilience, I think, amidst what we had previously thought were unthinkable conditions. And so as Americans and people around the world endure the hardships of the pandemic, breaking the matzah together can remind us of all of this, the pain that so many are suffering right now, the importance of those close to us who help get us through those tough times, and the better times that we're all working together uh, to achieve. Uh, and so with that, uh, I will take out the middle matzah here and break it. Of course, not along those lines. Happy Passover, everybody. Thank you so much, Michael. Thank you. Um, I resonate so much to what you're sharing about the matzah, and uh, it is both the symbol of our freedom, the bread that our ancestors ate when they left enslavement, so, so eager to leave their oppression that there wasn't even time for it to rise. But it is also the bread of our suffering. When we hold it in our hands on Seder night, we're going to recite the words, ha lachma anya, di achalu, this is the bread of affliction, which our ancestors ate in the land of Egypt. Let all who are hungry come and eat. So I want to ask us to think for a moment about how it could be that matzah is both the symbol of our freedom and the bread of affliction, the food of slaves. And why are we inviting other people to join us in eating the bread that symbolizes our oppression, our, our poverty and our suffering? In fact, the matzah represents both slavery and freedom. As Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Yichonor Livracha, teaches, what transforms the bread of affliction into the bread of freedom is the willingness to share it with others. I wanted to share with you this evening a story that Mother Teresa told about bringing food to a family with eight children who hadn't eaten in days. She entered into their home and she looked into the faces of the children, disfigured, she wrote, by the deep pain of hunger. She handed a plate of rice to the mother, who divided the rice in two and walked out of the house. When she returned a few minutes later, she served the remaining half plate to her children. Mother Teresa asked her, where did you go? And she answered, to my neighbors, because they're hungry also. I was not surprised that she gave, Mother Teresa recalled. Poor people are really very generous. I was surprised that she knew that they were hungry because as a rule, when we're suffering, we're so focused on ourselves that we have no time for others. We've been through so much this year. These past many years, we have suffered and we've lost. But the way that we begin to heal is by seeing one another and by sharing what strength and what resources we do have. In that way, we recognize that we are all bound up in one another, that through our shared struggle, we turn our affliction into a shared journey toward healing. So now we come to the telling of the story. What I told you is really the, the beating heart of the Seder. This is the story of a powerful ruler who forcefully and violently suppresses the Israelite minority living under his rule brutally enslaving the people for hundreds of years. 
But after centuries of suffering, God hears the cries of the oppressed and redeems them with a strong hand and an outstretched arm, with plagues and with wonders culminating in the splitting of the sea. The message of this story is that God stands on the side of the oppressed and will bend the arc of the moral universe toward justice. But this is not only a story about divine grace and mercy. This is also the story of Shifra and Pua, the midwives in the first chapter of the book of Exodus, who resisted Pharaoh's decree that the Hebrew babies must be killed on the birth stool. This is the story of Batia, Pharaoh's daughter, who defies Pharaoh from within his own home. This is the story of Miriam, who found her prophetic voice as a small girl of only five years old. It's the story of Moses, who grew up with all of the power and privilege of a prince and abandoned it all when he witnessed the oppression of the vulnerable in his own midst, being transformed into a prophet and a teacher, a freedom, freedom fighter, fighter, and a labor, and a labor organizer. organizer. This, this is the story is the of the Israelite people, people who did not quietly submit to the horrors of enslavement, but cried out and held faith, even after hundreds of years of brutal oppression. It's the story of people who went out and painted their doorposts with lamb's blood, publicly proclaiming not only their faith, but their desperate yearning to free themselves from the shackles of their enslavement. It's the story of a people who did not wait for God to miraculously split the sea, but were so hungry for freedom that they marched forward into the raging waters. And only once they nearly drowned did that sea part. The moral message of this story is that liberation requires courageous human action. As Frederick Douglass preached in 1857, there is no struggle. There is no progress without struggle. This struggle may be a moral one, or it may be a physical one, but it must be a struggle. Power, he wrote, concedes nothing without a demand. It never did, and it never will. This year, let this story remind us that redemption only comes when human beings partner with the Holy One to bend the arc of history, to engage the struggle for freedom. Now, this story that we tell at our Seder tables is the origin story of the Jewish people. It's a reminder through the generations that even in times of profound struggle, our collective story does not end in suffering. History is not static. Suffering is not without meaning. Life and love, justice and dignity will prevail. And that's why this story survived for thousands of years. Even facing liquidation in the Warsaw Ghetto, Jews prepared for Seder and Jewish prisoners in death camps saved flour to make matzah and whispered the words of the Haggadah late into the night to one another. Because this story and its moral message have been a source of strength through the darkest chapters of our history. And it's important for us to know that this story is precious not only to the Jewish people, but it's actually ubiquitous, inspiring people across time and space who yearn for freedom. Because in a world of cruelty and injustice, this story testifies to the inextinguishable yearning, human and divine, for freedom and justice, for equity and equality. Make no mistake, this is a radical story, one that sees the religious life as a perpetual, unfinished moral and spiritual revolution, a testimony to the centrality of human dignity and justice in a world of systemic oppression and racism, a testimony to the possibility of change 
in a world of political intransigence and stagnancy. And so this story is both particular and universal. It is timely and timeless, prodding us across the generations to imagine a world in which human dignity is real and shared by every single person created in God's own image, a world in which that dream manifests as a collective commitment to building social structures that are equitable, just, and loving. So yes, this is also a political story. It asks us to imagine a world in which every child is safe and loved, housed and well-fed and treated like the unique and infinitely valuable human beings that they all are. We'll now hear from some of our children. Again, the students at the Milton Gottesman Jewish Day School as they sing for us the four questions. people. And now a word about these questions. Our rabbis were great educators. How do you teach a story that stands at the heart of our self-understanding in a way that our children could really learn it generation after generation for thousands of years? What they knew was that for someone to learn, her imagination needed to be awakened. So we engage in all kinds of unusual practices at the Seder, to spark the interest of our children, to get them to ask a question. Asking, wondering, imagining, these are the building blocks of the journey to freedom. Once we begin to see not only what is, but what could be, we become agents in our own story unfolding, just like Shifra and Pua and Batya and Miriam and Moses, all of those who came before us, whose dreams and visions propelled us on the journey to freedom. 
Now we're gonna turn to the 10 plagues and Abby Gluck, White House Special Counsel, Office of the White House Counsel, where she works on the COVID-19 response, will recite the plagues that God visited upon the people of Mitzrayim of Egypt. Abby, we turn to you. Good evening, everyone. It is such a privilege to be here with you tonight to feel the spirit of community, even as we are apart. Perhaps more than any other holiday, Passover is about togetherness and family. Everyone has a role to play, down to the youngest child. So that makes it especially hard to be going into this second Passover when we cannot all be together as we always are, especially since last Passover, we've lost so many loved ones to COVID-19 and we have all endured so many collective and personal hardships. Of course, the Passover story itself is a story of enormous suffering, but it's also a story of patience, resilience, courage, heroes, miracles, and optimism. And we can all identify with that story right now, every facet of it. As the daughter of an immigrant and the granddaughter of Holocaust survivors, Passover has always taken on deep meaning for us in the present as well as the past. My grandparents survived the murders of their entire families, the concentration camps, an unimaginable tragedy. And yet our Passover table was still always so joyful. That possibility of exodus toward a new beginning after unimaginable suffering and courage and the importance of retelling that story year after year to every generation is what establishes such a profound connection for Holocaust families to this holiday. And of course, we all feel that connection right now. We're at the moment in the Seder now where we recite the 10 plagues. We see the extent of God's power as plagues of blood, frogs, lice, wild beasts, pestilence, skin disease, hail, locusts, darkness, and the slaying of the firstborn are sent upon the Egyptians. But at the same moment, we recognize that the Egyptians suffered in those moments, even as the Jewish people were freed. We mark that moment and that uneasy conflict with the tradition by reciting each plague and dipping one's pinky into a glass of wine or grape juice in symbolic recognition, spilling of blood in memory of the pain of others. The rabbi is going to do the plagues officially, but I will demonstrate just so you get the gist. So we say blood, dam, frog, svardeya, and so on. Now you're all pros. Today, of course, we have our own story to tell of heroes and modern miracles. Our scientists, our healthcare workers, our frontline workers, our first responders are all performing feats and miracles tirelessly every day to get us across our modern Red Sea and to the other side of this pandemic. The day my family came to the United States, it was December, and they were used to very dark and cold winters in Poland. When they stepped outside, it was sunny and warm, and my grandmother always said she thought in that moment, even in the winter, it's always sunny in the United States of America. And that's why our Passover table was always so joyful in gratitude for the freedom and opportunity this country has always offered and the chance for a fresh start. So on this Passover, even as we wait patiently for our own fresh start, let us remember all who have perished and maybe continue to have the patience, courage, resilience, and optimism of our ancestors, whether recent or long ago, to get to the other side and be together again at big long tables, grateful for what we have together. I hope you'll allow me to close with an excerpt from another great American for who I had the privilege of working, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, from her co-authored essay on the women of Passover. 
While there is much light in today's world, there remains in our universe this hearkening darkness, inhumanity spawned by ignorance and hate. The Passover story recalls to all of us, women and men, that with vision and action, we can join hands with others of like kind, kindling lights along paths leading out of the terrifying darkness. Chag Sameach. Thank you, Abby, and Chag Sameach to you. Uh, before, we, before we demonstrate what this uh, taking of the wine from the glass looks like, I want to say that people often think that these plagues were intended as a punishment for the wrongs that the Egyptians committed against our Israelite ancestors. But this year, I want to lift up the teaching of Sforno, a 15th century Italian rabbi, who said that the plagues weren't intended to be punitive at all. They were actually designed to awaken the conscience of Pharaoh and his people, to help them see the truth. The plagues were designed to inspire Pharaoh to repent, to make tshuva, because God wanted to elicit in Pharaoh and his people a true change of heart. Think about that for a moment. God wanted the Egyptians to realize that they had been wrong and then to take responsibility, to make amends, to offer reparations, to chart a new course. In this redemption story, the objective was not only the liberation of the Israelites, but the liberation of the Egyptians as well from a failed moral narrative that allowed them to enslave other human beings in the first place. True redemption requires not only the transformation of the oppressed, but also of the oppressors. The real tragedy of this story is not only all the human suffering that unfolded, it's that Pharaoh and his people were offered a chance to be a part of a powerful redemption story, to move from being corrupt oppressors to collaborators and building a new society rooted in justice for all. But that would have required a change of heart. Pharaoh failed to wake up out of his fear-fueled, greed-driven slumber. He refused to reckon honestly with the past, and he and his people suffered terribly for it. As Abby mentioned, when we say each of the plagues, we take a drop of wine from our glass, showing that our celebrations diminished. But it's not only because the Egyptian people suffered with each plague that happened for our freedom to be achieved, but also to show that we are grieving, that they too could have been redeemed with us, if only they had been willing to reckon truthfully with the past and carve a path for a more just future. So here we'll say the 10 plagues in Hebrew. Dam, Tzfardeya, Kinim, Arov, Dever, Shechin, Barad, Arbe, Choshech, Makat Bechorot, or as David Light, my husband, has been saying since he was six years old and to this day, lice, dice, and things that are not so very nice. Okay, maybe you know what comes next. We're going to turn it back to the Milton Goddessman Jewish Day School now for Dayenu. It's a catchy tune enumerating the many acts of love and protection that God showed to us in the course of our exodus and heaping gratitude upon gratitude. Of course, if you really pay attention to the words, you're going to start to wonder inevitably, would it really have been enough if God took us out of Egypt, but then didn't help us cross the sea? Would it really have been enough if we crossed the sea, but then had not found manna, that miracle food that helped us survive in the desert? Would it really have been enough if God brought us to Mount Sinai, but didn't give us the Torah? And the answer is, of course not. But in a culture of greed, entitlement, and relentless consumption, when nothing is ever enough, Dayenu trains our hearts to find gratitude, 
The rabbis understood long ago what psychology bears out today, that sincere expressions of gratitude actually help us experience more fulfillment and joy in our lives. Even when we have far less than what we think we need, even still, our tradition reminds us that each person is to strive to be sameach b'chelko, thankful for whatever it is that we do have. Dayenu. Now we're going to turn to the core symbols of our Seder. Rabban Gamliel teaches that if we neglect to mention the Pesach, Matzah, and Maror, our Seder is incomplete. I'm really pleased to introduce Ann Neuberger, White House Deputy National Security Advisor for Cyber and Emerging Technologies, who will now speak about the Maror, the bitter herbs. Thank you, Rabbi Braus. So we're asked at the Passover Seder to taste the Maror, and to close our eyes and imagine the bitterness that our forefathers felt when they were slaves in Egypt. And when we do so, to feel for that moment what it felt like to be slaves and to bring that feeling into our freedom so that we will always see those who are, who feel despised or different or afraid. And for each moment then of our freedom, it'll be enriched by the gratitude for that freedom. In my own family, my grandparents knew what it meant, what it felt like truly to be slaves. My grandmother survived Auschwitz. My grandfathers were slave laborers. All lost their parents and their siblings in the horrors of the Holocaust. And yet for them, all we saw was their gratitude for freedom, their gratitude for the ability to lead lives, begin their lives again, their gratitude for a country that took them in when they had very little to offer. And they bequeathed to me their granddaughter, a profound appreciation for the freedom from fear, the sense that I could lead my life with my family and with my children with, without the fear of being persecuted, without the fear of being afraid. Many nights when I leave the White House and walk down the steps of the executive office building, I look up to my right and see the Washington Memorial lit up against the dark night. I think of my grandparents and I think of the lessons of their lives, the fear and the pain, and the gift of freedom they taught us to never forget. And yet, Murr teaches us another profound lesson. For by tradition, it is dipped into haroset, Hebrew for mud, to remember 
the mud and the buildings again and again that the Jewish slaves were forced to build. And yet, Mara is sweet, made of red wine and nuts, not what one would expect from mud. And it's done so to remind us that even in the toughest of moments, there's always hope, there's always meaning. And indeed, in the story of Passover, we see the story of Miriam, Moses' sister, who at the Red Sea brings out a tambourine and breaks out in song and dance. And we must wonder, the Jews were in such a rush to leave Egypt that they left with raw dough on her back. How did she take the time to pack a tambourine? Miriam was a woman of hope. She knew a time would come for song and dance. It was just a matter of time. She had the faith and the hope. So she packed a tambourine to be ready for that moment. This last year has been such a difficult one. Lives lost, livelihoods lost, a great deal of pain and suffering. And yet within that, there was hope, there was meaning. The healthcare workers whose dedication inspired us the researchers who quickly worked to build a vaccine, and regular Americans and individuals around the world who looked out for those who are vulnerable. As we start to emerge and regain our freedom post-COVID, we have a deeper appreciation for every moment of that freedom and of what it means to us. May we always keep that memory. Chag Sameach, happy holidays from our families to yours. Thank you, Anne. I am sure that I am not alone in being completely overwhelmed by the wisdom, by the soulfulness, and by the insight that come from this extraordinary team. So thank you all for sharing. And uh, it's really such a breath of fresh air. Um, I feel like we're in very good hands. I'm now very pleased to introduce Herbie Ziskin, Deputy Communications Director to Vice President Harris who's going to share some reflections from the Obama Sedarim. Thank you so much, Rabbi. It's an honor to be here. And as the rabbi mentioned, I'm currently Vice President Harris's Deputy Communications Director. But in 2008, I was a young staffer for then Senator Obama on his presidential campaign. And we were in Pennsylvania traveling the state during Passover. So we couldn't go home for, for Passover. I couldn't go home to have a Seder. So we did a makeshift Seder in the basement of a Sheraton hotel in Harrisburg. And we had all the things you would have. We had uh, Maxwell House Agata's scent. We had Seder plates. And we invited Senator Obama after a long day of campaigning. And he said, great, I'd love to join. And so a bunch of staffers and Senator Obama did a Seder late into the night uh, on, a, on, a, on that trip in Pennsylvania. And at the end, when we raised our wine and said, next year in Jerusalem, Senator Obama said, next year in the White House, if I win. And he won. And so the next year, we were in Washington, and we started the tradition of doing the Seder in the White House. And it was like all the Seders I experienced growing up in Massachusetts with my family. We had Maxwell House Haggadahs. We had spirited debates about politics, and we talked over each other. And we even had a chair for Elijah, but we weren't allowed to open the door for him. The Secret Service said no. But we did all the things that you would do at a Seder, except there was one twist, which is we started to use, we started to, to read the Emancipation Proclamation and go around the table and read the Emancipation Proclamation to bring into our more modern times the story of Exodus from slavery to freedom. And as Elie Wiesel once said, it's a good story. It's a story of 
going from slavery to freedom. And reading those, reading the Emancipation Proclamation and recounting that story uh, is something that I will certainly take with me. My wife said, we're going to do this once we have a family and try to do all we can to bring Passover into our lives in the moment. Because what makes the Seder, what makes this ritual special is that it's current. And the inequities in our in communities across this country, people who are oppressed around the world, we're constantly trying to, to, to in, in terms of the exodus, get to freedom. And it's something that will continue. And I just want to thank the second gentleman, Vice President Harris, the president and the first lady for allowing us to do this and allowing us to continue a tradition that's really powerful and to share it with people all over the country and the world. So, so thank you. Thank you, Herbie. Thank you so much. We're coming near the close of our Seder now. So I would like to introduce Cynthia Bernstein, who's special assistant to the president and director of management and administration in the office of the vice president, who was really central in putting this celebration together, who's going to offer a quick message for Hallel, our songs of praise. The Seder, the Seder concludes with sections known as Hallel and Nirza, where we give praise and thanks and look towards the future. We give praise and thanks to God for the liberation from slavery and are filled with optimism for what next year will bring. This year, that message resonates more strongly than ever. As Mr. Emhoff and others have noted, we have so many to say thank you to, to our healthcare workers, first responders, frontline workers, scientists, community members, the neighbors who went grocery shopping for us, leaders who thought of new and creative ways to bring us together, and to those who continue to exhibit selflessness, fortitude, and courage every single day. When I think about my Pesach memories, I of course think of my grandparents. The last Passover Seder that my husband, siblings, parents, and I spent with my grandfather, who at the time was 102 years old, we all sat around the table at my sister and brother-in-law's house and asked him, what does he think is one of the most important messages of the holiday? Without skipping a beat, he looked up with a twinkle in his eye and a smile on his face and answered with one word, perseverance. Thank you, Cynthia. And now I am so thrilled that we have a message from President Joe Biden and First Lady, Dr. Jill Biden. Hello, everyone. We wish you all a joyous Passover season. As Jewish families across the country and around the world mark this important tradition, we know you're all setting the Seder table with heavy hearts, but also with hope for the year ahead. As we continue working to defeat this pandemic, we continue to confront discrimination and prejudice. As we seek to rebuild from a time of struggle and loss, we need inspiration of the Passover now more than ever. Because at its heart, Passover is a story of overcoming adversity and finding hope, of summoning the resilience and resolve to emerge from a long, dark night to a brighter morning. It's a story of empathy and how our own rights are bound up with the rights of our neighbors. And it's a story of faith that even in the face of oppression, better days lie ahead. This celebration is Jewish, but its message is universal. It resonates from generation to generation. This year, like last, we're still planning virtual celebrations, 
blessing the matzah and wine over the screen rather than side by side. And you know, there are, there are still some grandparents who haven't been able to embrace their grandchildren since the last Passover. And there are far, far too many empty chairs at our Seder, a solemn reminder of all that we've lost. Just like we remember the plight of the Israelites, the memories of these loved ones will never be far from our hearts. But if we learn anything from the Haggadah, it's that our task isn't to discard painful memories. It's to turn that pain into purpose. You know, as we work uh, to vaccinate the nation, bring our economy back from the brink, let's hold that lesson close to our hearts. You know, we can close the Seder by adapting a familiar refrain, not only next year in Jerusalem, but next year in person, next year together. On behalf of our entire family, Hag Shemeach, have a wonderful Passover. Thank you so much, President Biden, and thank you, Dr. Biden. The Book of Psalms teaches Be'erev Yalin Bechi Ula Bokerina. We may lie down weeping in the night, but joy comes in the morning. Out of your oppression, redemption from your tears, laughter, from your sorrow, new life, new love, new blessing. This is the message of Passover. Joy will come in the morning. Maybe that's why we stay up late on Seder night, deep into the night, almost trying to usher in that new morning. As a nation, we are right now in the midst of a transformation, leaving a long, tearful night and rising up to meet a new dawn, to birth a new America. This story reminds us that to greet that new dawn, we will need to be honest and visionary, courageous and steadfast. Now, for thousands of years, our sedarim have closed with the words, Shana Habab next year in Jerusalem, carrying generation to generation, the dream of a people exiled and oppressed, persecuted and powerless, finally arriving in that land of promise. This year, we say Shana Habab next year in a Jerusalem radiating the light and goodness of a just and loving society that lifts up the dignity and the humanity of all of its inhabitants. And I am now deeply honored to turn things back to Second Gentleman Doug Emhoff and to welcome our Vice President, Kamala Harris, who has joined us to close this sacred celebration. Well, first, thank you so much to uh, President Biden and First Lady Dr. Jill Biden for those incredible, inspiring remarks. Thank you so much. And Rabbi, thank you again for sharing your inspirational words mm -hmm. from our hometown, home <laughs> state, and helping us celebrate Passover at the White House. I also want to thank, again, the White House staff who shared their own stories and reflections with us this evening. And after a year of social distancing and mask wearing, it's impossible not to feel isolated at times. So it's events like this one, events that creatively bring family and friends and communities together that keep us connected and remind us that we're not alone. So thank you all again to the thousands of you that are out there. And I now have the privilege of doing one of my favorite things in life, and that's introducing my wife, the Vice President of the United States of America, Kamala Harris. Thank you, Dougie. <laughs> Hi, Rabbi. 
And everyone, everyone, it's, I, I, yes, next year in person, Mr. President, and, you know, in Jerusalem. Um, but it's, it's good to be with everyone, and um, I'm so honored to, to, to be a part of this celebration and that we are all here together to celebrate Passover. And I especially want to thank Rabbi um, Brous for all of your work and um, the Milton Gottesman Jewish Day School of the nation's capital for all of the work that you have been doing to make this special gathering happen. And I also want to take a moment to welcome several distinguished guests who are joining our Passover celebration this evening. Uh, my friend and a former colleague, but friend always, Jackie Rosen, a former rabbi, well, still a rabbi. Um, I want to thank all of the, the, the members of Congress who are a part of this and everyone for all of the work that you have done. Um, and of course, I'm so glad to see the second gentleman and his element. Um, I only wish, you know, he talked earlier about those matching Passover outfits. I just wish we had a photograph to, to really um, fully appreciate the magnificence of that. <laughs> um, but our family, like so many families in the United States, and the state of Israel and around the world, will begin to celebrate the sacred holiday of Passover this weekend. And the Passover story is powerful. It reminds us of the resilience of the human spirit in the face of injustice. It urges us to keep the faith in the face of uncertainty. And it speaks to fundamental truths, the truths that we all hold dear and must sometimes be reminded of, which is that we all deserve freedom. And it's our duty to fight for those who are not yet free. And so this year, as we dip our greens in salt water and pour out our ceremonial wine and eat our bitter herbs, let us commit once again to repairing the world. Happy Passover to all who celebrate, and indeed next year in Jerusalem, next year in person. And now I am thrilled to introduce the children of Ikar for a final word. Hug Samaya. Hug Samaya. Hi everyone. Hug Samaya. Happy Passover. Say hug Samaya. Hug Samaya. I love you. Happy Passover. Hug Samaya. Hug Samaya. Happy Passover.